Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin. And today we have a really special guest. We have Mark Redfield, who is a professor of comparative literature, English and German studies at Brown University. He has a really wide range of interests from the Bildungsroman, the intersections of nationalism, media and techniques, terrorism and war, and the history and practice of literary theory, which all show up in the many different works he's written. Um, Some of those include Phantom Formations, Aesthetic Ideology in the Bildungsroman, The Politics of Aesthetics, Nationalism, Gender, and Romanticism, and The Rhetoric of Terror, Reflections on 9-11 and the War on Terror. But today we're going to be talking about a different book, one that was just published in 2020 by the Fordham University Press. Um, which is titled Shibboleth, Judges, Derrida, and Ceylon. Hello, Mark. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you, Britt. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Um, so before we begin, I just want to ask you about your background, um, both as if you want to talk a little bit more about your how you came to literature and your interests and how they intersect with each other, as well as um, the background of the book, how it came into being, what inspired you to write it, as well as what you looked at in gathering um, resources and during the research stage of writing. Hmm. Okay, thanks. Uh, that's that's That would be a lot to talk about, but I'll try to be concise. Uh, well, I've loved uh, literature since I was a child. I was, you know, one of those bookish kids. Um, And I think that one thing that feeds into the, well, into everything I do, but particularly maybe into this book is the fact that I grew up overseas uh, a lot. I grew up in a couple of different places, uh, the U.S., but also Switzerland and and Brazil. And um, one of my formative memories is of being a little child in kindergarten desperately wanting to be able to talk like the other kids. This was in Zurich. And so I've always grown up with a sense that there were other languages out there. And I had a, as it were, sort of libidinal investment in, you know, in, in particularly in a couple of languages, particularly German, uh, and then later French in my, in my life. Um, so uh, that led me into comparative literature. Um, and this particular project, maybe I'll just sort of jump to that. And if you want, you know, we could talk more about my background, but uh, this particular project uh, kind of came out of us through a circuitous route uh, because I'm interested in language and in borders and in uh, the question of passing borders and passing or failing to pass in all sorts of ways, but in this case, linguistic texts. Tests, tests, as well as texts. Um, I was interested in the biblical story of the Shibboleth test, which we'll get to in a second. Um, 
But the reason why I started writing about it was because I was asked to give a paper for a conference for the great literary critic and media critic, Sam Weber. And I um, was interested in uh, Jonathan Littell's novel, The Kindly Ones, Les Bienveillantes, and Quentin Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, the film of, uh, what was it, 2008 or something. And um, these are very, very different texts or topics. I was kind of interested in the way in which the cultured Nazi in these films, the perpetrator, is granted linguistic power. And... Um, all the, the, both of these texts involve scenes of passing or failing to pass linguistic tests. And so I included in the little paper I wrote for that, or it ended up being an essay, a brief reading of the story in Judges. Um, and the core of that story, um, which you may want to come back to, is that the word shibboleth is used as a pronunciation test by the Gileadites who have defeated the Ephraimites, the Ephraimites are seeking to flee back over the Jordan River, but the Gileadites hold the ford. And um, maybe, Britt, it would be useful if I just read the line. Uh, yeah, that's totally fine. In which are the, the two verses in which, in which the core issue is raised. Um, and the Gileadites took the passage of Jordan before the Ephraimites, and it was so that when those Ephraimites, which were escaped, said, Let me go over, that the men of Gilead said unto him, Art thou an Ephraimite? If he said, Nay, then said they unto him, Say now Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth, for he could not frame to pronounce it right. Then they took him and slew him at the passages of Jordan, and there fell at that time of the Ephraimites forty and two thousand. That's the King James translation. So we'll get back to that story. But in doing a sort of quick reading of it for this project, I realized the story touched on large issues. Uh, I was also using a password management system called Shibboleth, which uh, everybody at Brown uses and, and, and elsewhere. So uh, that made me think that, you know, this, this word... Uh, actually might also be able to grant us access in ways of thinking about the testing and filtering of populations at our present in our present time in an area of era of um, sort of massive technical um, power and um, so add to that a long-standing love of Ceylon's poetry and admiration for the work of Jacques Derrida I reread Derrida's wonderful short book called Shibboleth for Paul, Dema Paul Ceylon um, from 1986. Um, in that book, Derrida says many brilliant things about Shibboleth and about Ceylon, but he doesn't really read the biblical story closely or any one poem by Ceylon closely, uh, certainly not the two poems that in which Ceylon uses the word shibboleth, which again, we'll probably get to in a moment. And I thought, well, I can do that. I'm a literary critic. So I started working on this and it gradually grew into the relatively short, quite short book, um, but still a kind of a book-sized project that, um, you know, that it is now. 
Yeah, it is a relatively short project. It's um, when I first got it, I saw it was only 108 pages or 106. And I was I thought, oh, this will be a very, very quick read. Um, but it's so dense. Um, you cover biblical history as well as um, the obviously incredibly dense Derrida, but also Ceylon, who is such a, a writer who's whose work is so intricate and is multifaceted and al- is always referencing something. And people in Ceylon scholarship obviously know this, but it's, there's, it's almost impossible. I'm sure it is impossible to completely exhaust the references of any Ceylon poem. Um, and you, you mentioned that in the text as well. So I want to start, I guess, with the biblical story. Um, so your first chapter, as well as a later one, talk about Shibboleth as part of this biblical story and how it becomes part of our linguistic and cultural um, canon. And that, and while that happened, the term shibboleth has taken over some changes over time. Um, Can you talk about the, what you track inside of this history and how we understand shibboleth versus how it originally was? Yes. Um, Let me sort of go at that backwards by quickly Uh, noting that in English, uh, the dominant meaning of the word shibboleth now uh, is of a worn-out cliché. So we talk about the shibboleths of yesteryear or something of this sort, a worn-out shibboleth, uh, we say, and the word shibboleth itself suggests that. Now, only the English language really has that meaning, although the German language also allows the word shibboleth to mean kind of a slogan. Uh, a war, so, so a potentially worn out uh, uh, bit of language, um, but uh, really in other languages, uh, uh, the word has stayed closer to its its the meaning that comes out of the bi- biblical story, which is that of test word. But in biblical Hebrew, the word has two meanings. Uh, one is of a stream, a flowing stream, and the other is of an ear of grain. Um, so, um, the interesting thing about the story, uh, in judges that we just read the kernel of is that who, it doesn't matter what it means. It's being used uh, simply as a pronunciation test to weed out, uh, a foreigner, someone who is ambivalently foreign, a supplemental test is needed right, to catch the foreigner um, or or the other, let us say. Uh, So the other is dangerously proximate to the self. This is, I'm already getting into, you know, the interesting things about the story. Uh, But um, uh, let's see. Yes, so um, if we go back to the book of Judges, uh, which is one of the bloodiest books in the Bible, the uh, fuller story of the of uh, uh, or the story in which the shibboleth test emerges is the story of the judge uh, Jephthah, uh, who is a quasi illegitimate figure insofar as on his mother's side uh, he's he's the child of a of a non legal spouse, uh, so he's a liminal figure. He's expelled from the community uh, by the by the true sons. Um, but then, presumably because he's a great military commander, he's asked to lead the, uh, 
to to lead the Gileadites uh, when they're in danger, and he agrees to do so if they will name him Shofat or judge. So they do, and Jephthah, in his turn, uh, swears an oath that he will, if he's allowed by God, he swears the oath to God. He said, uh, if he's allowed to win, he will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of the door of his house. And you can see where that goes, if, right? If you mythic logic demands that his only child, a daughter, is, be the first uh, creature to emerge from his, from his house. And so this is also the story of the only foregrounded, um, although it's discreet, but foregrounded child sacrifice in the Bible. Um, so Jephthah is the anti-Abraham in that sense, because um, the daughter is presumably sacrificed because he, he does with her as he had vowed to do. So right after that, you get the story of the Shibboleth test. So one interpretive challenge is to think about ways in which these, these violent stories might connect. And, um, um, you know, it's a bit speculative, but I think they connect insofar as the Shibboleth test, if you look at it carefully, turns out to involve a both a, a drama of murderously effective sovereign power and a threat that that sovereign power uh, lose its grip on the world, because that's what language does. And linguistic tests are always permeable because a linguistic sign is always uh, repeatable. Iterable was the word that Jacques Derrida preferred in his great analyses of how uh, of how this works. So um, I think it's a very rich story, and I'll mention just one other oddity um, it, uh, that I found I, to my delighted amazement as I carefully read read the. Uh, read the text, um, the word shibboleth um, uh, has, has as its initial letter the shin phoneme, um, which in unpointed Hebrew script is exactly the same as the sin phoneme, which is the S sound, sibboleth, as opposed to shibboleth. So in order for the story to be written down, as one biblical scholar notes, uh, the word had to be misspelled with a different Hebrew character, the Samek, as though the text itself were registering a kind of repetition of, the, of a failure of, uh, of a shibboleth test, even as it tells the story. It's an intriguing little detail. You know, you can't put too much weight on it, but it's an interesting uh, contingency that points us toward the deep instabilities at work in the, in the notion of the shibboleth test. Yeah, there's, there's a deep ambiguity within the concept of the shibboleth in that it points, as you mentioned, both to sovereign power and the possibility of the failure of that power. Um, and I think you also draw out a lot of connections to the shibboleth as a concept um, after it becomes um, a non-word or an unword, if it can ever be a word, to the idea of language. And I want to bring that to a chapter that is more towards the end of the book on the story of Babel. Um, 
staying with this kind of biblical context. Um, can you kind of elaborate on how the story of Babel and um, Pentecostal speech as well feeds into or relates to the question of the shibboleth? Because I think what you're drawing out is the idea that there is always something unstable about language. The shibboleth always only can work because of the possibility of misspeaking or of mishearing. Um, whereas in the story of Babel, you point out that the language was always already needing to be translated or the possibility of translation was already inside of language even before it was scattered. Um, so if you could just draw out those connections you make. Sure, I'll try. Um, the, uh, the story of, of Babel in, in Genesis, the way it's told already contains, as is typical in, in, in um, ancient Hebrew writing, um, uh, many puns, um, uh, plays of the signifier, and the verb that is used um, to, uh, to describe what the Lord, Yahweh, does uh, as he descends to confuse the language of, of the people who are building the Tower of Babel, right? Uh, the word balal um, means uh, to mix. Um, and according to the authorities I've consulted, it's a rare verb in the Bible that's mainly used for the mixing of fine flour and oil to make um, cakes or bread. So, it's a, so there would be other verbs that would have been possible, but instead we have this verb to mix, which suggests that the ingredients are already there and that in a way, Babel is already in language, even in pre-Tower of Babel language. Um, so it's just a hint. But that hint is, is reiterated, as it were, in the great restitutive story that you get in Acts in the New Testament, of the story of Pentecost, uh, which I found very interesting and spend a few pages uh, writing about in this, in this, as you say, um, dense book. Um, <laughs> if you, uh, I'll very briefly summarize the, the story, right? The Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles, um, and when they speak, um, uh, everyone in the multitude around them uh, and there's a great emphasis on how how worldwide the multitude is, as it were. Uh, everyone hears the apostles speak in their own language. And yet they also know that the apostles are speaking in the language of the other who is next to them as well. Um, I don't know that we want to actually read from that. Uh, we, you know, we have other texts to talk about. But um, if you go look at that at that passage, You'll see that it's it's quite fascinating in this way, and what that means is that as the apostles speak with the divine inspiration that is now theirs, um, they're simultaneously passing and failing the shibboleth test, passing it perfectly, because if you give the miracle its full power, everyone is hearing the apostles speak not just in their own language but in their own dialect, in their own idiom, right, in the way they speak in their village. And yet at the same time, they know that it's not the case. It's a simulacrum because the other is also hearing something else. So the apostles are both, <laughs> they are both uh, passing and failing the shibboleth test 
uh, at the same time through the in and through this miracle. And the result is that the, that the uh, community, that the world, the uh, multitude here is confused. Um, and the Greek word that's used for their confusion is precisely the word that is used to translate uh, confusion in the Septuagint, uh, that is the Greek uh, old translation of the Old Testament, to describe Babel. So it's a very, very interesting set of textual conjunctions there. And maybe I'll add one more thing, which is that um, if we say something like there is Babel in Shibboleth, uh, or the, the word Shibboleth conjures up these stories, that's partly because we can say that it's not a word that belongs to any language. Of course, it's an ancient Hebrew word that has the two meanings, right, of stream and grain. But its dominant meaning of, uh, or its contemporary meaning of test word, right, to mean the test that it originally performed in, happens outside the borders of the Bible. So the word shibboleth in that sense is no longer a word that belongs to any language. It's an inheritance that floats through languages. And there's... um, um, Maybe one other, well, there's so many other things to say about the Shibboleth test. Um, but may, while we're talking about the word itself, uh, one another thing that I draw attention to, this is leaping back to, I guess, my third or fourth chapter. These are all very, very short chapters, as you know. Uh, uh, the test, the Shibboleth test, falls on the very first sound, the phoneme, not even on the full word, Right. As soon as you've started to say sh or s, you've either passed or failed. And you might, in fact, be in some ambiguous place where, you know, the putatively native speaker who has the power to judge you will simply have to judge. Um, But this also means that the test fragments the word shibboleth itself. It's no longer, the test itself no longer bears on a word, but on a phoneme that might go somewhere else. Uh, towards some other language. It might, in fact, not even be language. And uh, somewhat ironically, I, I say, you know, it could be a sound, it could be flatulence, it could be some accident that produces that, that S sound. Uh, this is a pun that James Joyce uses in Ulysses. Um, um, so, um, um, uh, shit burleth. Um, is, is, is the pun in, in, in Ulysses. Uh, so this moment uh, of the Shibboleth test also renders language uncertainly language. It opens language to the possibility of being noise, of being non-meaningful in an even more radical way than simply the formality of a word from which we've excised the semantic meaning. So it's a tremendously uh, generative and rich uh, uh, textual moment. And as a result, ironically, all sorts of meaning collects around this meaninglessness. And we end up with a word that means the test that it was used to set, which means in turn that the word shibboleth can then mean any nuance of significant difference 
that allows for the exclusion of an outsider, the targeting and the exclusion of an outsider. So it becomes an enormously rich word that can do all the things that it, you know, that it does um, later. Thank you for that wonderful explanation of that biblical context. Um, as you said, we have um, some other texts that we can go through, and I would like to to go to the Ceylon poems themselves, and then we can discuss the Derrida and your readings of Ceylon. Um, but I think we'll start with the poems, um, and we'll read them out loud, um, both in English and in German. Um, you'll read the German and I'll read the English. So if you would like to start with um, in eins, and then we can read Shibboleth. Sure. And maybe just as we start, um, I'm just finding my place here. Uh, uh, let's note that in eins is the later poem. So there's a way in which a reading, it's a reading of Shibboleth. So we're going backwards. Uh, in eins dates from a 1963 collection and uh, Shibboleth, uh, dates from uh, 1955 collection. So we'll, I'm, we'll maybe have occasion to say more about that. So I'll read the, uh, the German poem in eins, uh, the later poem. In eins. 13. Fieber im Herzmond erwachtes Schibolet mit dir, Peuple de Paris, no passaran. Schäfchen zur linken, er, Abadias, der Greis aus Huesca, kam mit dem Hunden über das Feld im Exil, weiß eine Wolke menschlichen Adels. Er sprach uns das Wort in die Hand, das wir brauchten, es war Hirtenspanisch. Darin im Eislicht des Kreuzers Aurora die Bruderhand winkend mit der von der rotgroßen Augen genommenen Binde Petropolis, der unvergessenen Wanderstadt lag, auch dir toskanisch zu Herzen. Friede den Hüten. And I'll read the English. In one, 13th of February, in heart's mouth, awakened Shibboleth. With you, peuple de Paris, no passaran, Little sheep to the left, he, Abadias, the old man from Huesca, came with his dogs over the field. In exile stood a white cloud of human nobility. He spoke us the word that we needed into the hand. It was shepherd Spanish. In it, in the ice light of the cruiser Aurora, the brotherly hand waving with the band taken from the world large, word large eyes, Petropolis, the wandering city of the unforgotten, lay also for you Tuscanly on your heart. Peace to the cottages. And then we can move on to the next poem, the earlier poem. Shibboleth. Mit Sandmannenstein, den Großgeweinten, hinter den Gintern, schleiften sie mich die Mitte des Marktes, dorthin, wo die Fahne sich auch holt, der ich keinerlei einschwor. Flöte, Doppelflöte der Nacht, denke der dunklen Zwillingsröte in Wien, Madrid. 
Setz deine Fahne auf Halbmast, Erinnerung. Auf Halbmast für heute und immer. Herz, gib dich auch hier zu erkennen. Hier in der Mitte des Marktes. Rufs das Schipolet hinaus in die Fremde der Heimat. Februar, no passaran. Einhorn, du weißt um die Steine, du weißt um die Wasser. Komm, ich führe dich hinweg zu den Stimmen von Estremadura. Shibboleth, together with my stones, the ones grown large with weeping behind the bars, they dragged me into the middle of the market, over there where the flag unfurls to which I swore no oath whatsoever. Flute, double flute of night, think the dark twin redness in Vienna and Madrid. Set your flag at half-mast memory, at half-mast for today and forever. Heart, make yourself known here too, here in the middle of the market. Call it the shibboleth, out into the foreignness of the homeland. February, no pasaran. Unicorn, you know of the stones, you know of the waters. Come, I shall lead you away to the voices of Estremadura. So those are two poems by the Romanian Jewish German language poet, Paul Ceylon. Um, he's one of my favorite poets and I would feel maybe one of yours too. Yes. Oh yes. He's uh, uh, I'm, I'm captured by Ceylon. I'm continuing to try to write about him actually. Yeah. So I think we'll start with um, what Derrida talks about. Um, with Ceylon in reference to the Shibboleth. And you mentioned he has a short book on Paul Ceylon called Shibboleth, um, Shibboleth Poor Paul Ceylon. Um, it's, I think, I believe, part of the collection Sovereignties in Question, um, which is a collection of, I think, five texts all devoted to the work of Paul Ceylon. And you note in your book that it's interesting that Derrida chose to call this Shibboleth, though he's not reading um, really particularly these two poems. He's reading a lot of Ceylon's poems. Um, and as you also note that Shibboleth is not a word seen much in, Paul, in Ceylon's poetry, just these two times. Um, can you kind of explain the relationship between Shibboleth and Ceylon as Derrida sees it? Um, and maybe how he's connecting it to his other readings of Ceylon. Yes. Um, and maybe just, I, I perhaps should have said earlier, um, shibboleth is a rare word in the archive, generally. Uh, the opening pages of my book briefly go over that. Uh, of course it shows up because it's part of the Bible. But even though it in English, for instance, it rhymes with death, you would think that it might have shown up in more frequently in poetry, but it's, it's, it's pretty rare. So um, um, there's a very interesting use in Faulkner that I talk about in the book, but otherwise, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a word that Ceylon um, grants a certain intensity to, uh, and that kind of, it's kind of a salient. It stands out in the sort of long record of, uh, of 
of the literary tradition, let's say. Um, and Derrida, whose ear was extraordinarily attuned, I think, to scatterings of density in, in texts, you know, where to go to, to see where something interesting is happening. Derrida isolated that word um, in Ceylon, and in his first published work on Ceylon, the 1986 book, which is now, as you say, in English, part of the, the collected uh, collection sovereignties in question. That's the best way. The, that's the book to buy if you want to you know, get lots of these texts in English. Um, he doesn't uh, talk much about either of the two poems that we just read aloud. Um, he, talks, he discusses many texts by Ceylon. Um, but he allows the notion of shibboleth to um, to serve him as a kind of lever, to as a way in, as a shibboleth, let's say, to pass the border of, into uh, Ceylon's work. Um, and he links the notion of shibboleth to two things. And as usual with Derrida, or well, maybe not always, but it's uh, these. It's a kind of unexpected twist. He links shibboleth to the date and to circumcision. Those are the two main sort of topics or tropes or topoi that he focuses on in in that book. Uh, The word circumcision literally in its German form, beschneiden, uh, beschneidel as the the noun, appears only once in Salon, at least in a major poem. Um, So the question is not you know, looking for frequency of use. Uh, it's rather uh, uh, the way in which a word can uh, signify beyond its literal appearance. Um, now, in thinking about the importance of the date and dating, Derrida is very much working in harmony with Salon's own thought. If you read Salon's great uh prize acceptance speech. He was given the Buchner Prize uh, in 1960. Um, it's called the Meridian Speech because the title he titled it The Meridian. Uh, he writes a good deal about dates in that. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very, very dense text. It's almost as dense as a Salon poem. Uh, very rich, and I recommend it wholeheartedly to to anyone who cares about about um, about Salon or about about um, modern poetry, um, and Salon um, partly uh, because he's also reading um, a story by Georg Büchner um, in which the date the twentieth of January appears. Salon ends up claiming every poem has its twentieth of January. What does he mean by that? Well, <laughs> you can, uh, you may, uh, there will be no definitive answer to that. But the 20th of January uh, was the day in which the, um, the Nazi government uh, decided uh, on its genocidal approach to, um, uh, to the um, quote unquote Jewish question. Um, that's the Wannsee Conference in which the regime committed itself to genocide. So on the one hand, the 20th of January for Ceylon as a survivor um, 
uh, has a, it's a mark of trauma, a mark of that which must not be forgotten, that which must, the poetry must in certain slant way bear witness. And, but it's also, Salon also writes and thinks of the date as um, an event that can also be to come, an openness to an other, another, another encounter. So it's double-edged in Salon. Um, it's, it's, as it were, the kernel of a poem. And Derrida um, finds in this a poetic version, you could say, of his enormously powerful analysis of iterability and the trace uh, and the mark, uh, which in some way or other, all of his work, um, it's kind of the spine that runs through his vast oeuvre. Um, because the date uh, must, on the one hand, it, you know, it signifies at once uh, the mark of something singular, right? It was that day, that moment, when that happened. And yet, in order to function as a date, it has to be repeatable, iterable. Um, uh, so the date both um, must both be iterable, and yet it must also, in a sense, withhold a secret. And there are a lot of dates in Salon's poems, sometimes even effaced ones. He'll date a poem, and then he'll remove the date. Um, and of course, we have seen in the two Shibboleth poems that dates appear, right, in the form of February, which uh, would be more, we'll perhaps want to say more about that. So um, when Derrida talks about Shibboleth in relation to date, he's talking in part about the, a kind of question of access to the, to the poem. Um, uh, do we know what, it, what, what, what is being what is being evoked by, by the date, uh, which is which which the poem is is uh, circling around, and with circumcision, of course, is uh, more obviously you could say um, a sign of inclusion and exclusion, right? It's a mark that um, that uh, defines a community. Um, so. That's um, that's a rough summary of the main points. I hope of of, of Derrida's very rich text, which I can't begin to you know try to summarize properly. Yeah, that's a it's a very difficult text. I I think I was assigned it twice while I was a student at Brown, and both times it was it was hours spent in the library trying to track down what it meant and try to capture it. But I think on some level there's, it's impossible. And I think Derrida would himself um, accede to that. Um, and I, you bring up this, the idea of the date as this, this really interesting and epiretic moment or concept, because in one way it must be singular and it must be um, an individual thing like February 13th, it's this one thing, but it, it only can be that insofar as it is able to repeat and insofar as every year has its February 13th. Um, and I think I, w I think we can talk now about um, the specifics of February 13th. So 
Um, if you want to give the context of, of that, um, as well as, um, I guess, maybe the it be, that being the shibboleth, um, February, February no pasaran, which appears in both poems. Um, can you just tell us more about what this date means? Sure, I'll try. Yeah. Um, uh, okay, so uh, the the second poem, which is to say the first one we read in Eins, um, gives you a more specific uh, date, right? Uh, 13th of February. Um, and uh, the, the references that all the standard um, sort of commentaries on Ceylon offer you there are uh, first, it's the date in which um, uh, the socialist party was crushed in uh, the brief, call it civil war in Vienna in 1934 um, by the regime of uh, the Dolfos regime, um, um, who was the head of the Christian Socialist Party, essentially what's called Austro-fascism. Um, ironically, uh, Dolfus was assassinated by Nazi agents a year later, um, and uh, another member of his party became president and until the Anschluss, right, in, in 1938. Uh, so, uh, but, but it's essentially it was a fascist party, and um, uh, it uh, crushed the, uh, uh, the socialist movement in 1934 on the, on the 13th. Um, then also on February 13th, 1962, which is a topical reference when Salon is writing his poem, there was a massive funeral in Paris for uh, victims uh, who had been protesters who had been killed protesting the OAS, which stands for the Organisation Armée Secrète, which was a paramilitary uh, French organization that was seeking to prolong the war in Algeria. So the protesters against the OAS were killed by police. And their funeral was on the 13th of February, 1962. It was a huge event. And then there's also on February 12th, but reported on the 13th, is one of the largest anti-fascist demonstrations in Parisian history. Uh, in 1934, if I remember rightly. Um, you have to check that. Um, this is all just to say that even with the relatively specificity of the 13th of February, Ceylon uh, manages to suggest multiple references for the date. So the date not only is singular, uh, not only does it come around again every year, as it were, February 13th, um, but Ceylon is also em emphasizing that, that there's a split singularity that he's interested in. It's singular here and it's singular there. And it's February 13th. And we're going to um, poetically bring it together in one, in eins. All of these singular moments of violence, loss, or hope, um, because there can be hope as well. Um, February, in this case, the 16th, was the um, 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 the uh, acquisition of power of the um, Popular Front in Madrid, 
you know, that was then overthrown by Franco um, starting the following summer. Mm-hmm. And these dates, oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, um, so this the possibility of hope that um, Ceylon is inscribing into the into the poems, um, kind of it moves along the same axis of like remembering and keeping score and making sure to honor the the past that has come to be and that we are inheriting. Um, and you say that. On these poems, quote, present themselves as political acts of memory and address at the same time, like, and at the, at the same time that like all literary texts, they disable the reduction of language to message or form to meaning. Um, and I think that's something that's very palpable in the poems, especially um, in Shibboleth, unfurl your flagged half-mast memory. Um, can you talk a bit about how these act these poems both act or act as memory and address especially in relation to what you call um their anti-capitalist and anti-fascist um, rhetorics sure um let me maybe just first quickly say a word about the other prominent possible shibboleth because the poem makes it impossible to say that there's any one shibboleth right in the in in, it, in the poem, and that's part of what it's doing to the concept of shibboleth. Whereas in the in the scene of sovereign violence in the Bible or elsewhere, um, there's only one right shibboleth. You have to answer to power. The poem is exploding that into multiple shibboleths. But the other one that is very prominent, of course, is the Spanish phrase "no pasarán." Um, which became famous. Uh, it was originally a First World War. Um, um, it comes from the First World War as a French uh, phrase, I think from Verdun, uh, although I have terrible memory unless I go remind myself of things. Uh, they will not pass, right? Ils ne passeront point. But it, it became particularly famous in, uh, uh, when um, uh, Dolores Ibarri Gomez uh, over the radio uh, gave her speech in response to the rebellion of the generals, uh, uh, they will not pass, no pasaran. And so it's remained with us as a, as a sort of leftist slogan. And note that it's in the future tense in Spanish. Um, it's not, it's, it's so, and it survives as a shibboleth slogan past the fall of Madrid. Um, Franco is supposedly said, hemos pasado, ironically, right, when he captured Madrid, as though he could annihilate uh, the famous, uh, you know, slogan, no pasaran. Well, guess what? We did pass. <laughs> yes, they did. But the, um, there's, a, there's a utopic possibility in the slogan, inscribed in the slogan that Salon, I think, activates in the poem. Uh, and part of the utopic possibility that it points to is that no one will pass perhaps because no one ultimately, because maybe at some point no one will be a fascist anymore, right? Uh, so no one has to be a fascist. Um, the, 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 this shibboleth as, re, as sort of repositioned by Ceylon um, leaves that open, leaves that possibility of, future, of a futurity open. And of course, it's a reversal of the biblical scenario because uh, it's a defensive rather than offensive uh, uh, shibboleth, right? 
Mm -hmm. Uh, The problem is that someone is trying to pass rather than trying to escape, um, uh, as in the biblical story. Um, So uh, with that, um, yeah, maybe um, I should say something about address. Um, Yeah, I I was going to ask about that. Um, There's this, you have an incredible chapter about apostrophe and the last um, half of your other chapter on Ceylon is about address. And I think what I would like to hear about is how you think the poems use address as in relation to their, um, their bearing a shibboleth. Um, because in the Bremen speech, Ceylon talks about how the poem is, um, is like a message in a bottle that you throw out to sea. And the poem is always on its way towards the other. It's always an address, but it doesn't always necessarily have this kind of this this relationship between two distinct and visible um, subjects. It's the poem and the other. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the structures of address and how that relates to the shibboleth in question. Yeah, the poem is a is an address to the other, um, um, and um, the trope that is associable with address is is called apostrophe um uh which literally means turning away apostrophein in, in in greek uh and what we what apostrophe is as a trope is an address to the absent or the dead or the inanimate right uh it's a, it's a trope that's easy to parody um but it's also the trope that's at the heart of sort of great ode tradition in in western poetry oh wild west wind right or or thou still unravaged bride of quietness keats addressing the urn uh so uh this is a a a figure of address that uh seeks to animate um the absent the dead the inanimate and so it's easy to think of apostrophe as sort of centered in a full and sovereign intent that extends its generosity toward the absent and the dead and animates them. Um, and there's a, you know, that's certainly part of the, the theater of, of this trope, but any powerful apostrophe also reveals that um, the very power of the trope to generate, um, uh, to, to, to produce uh, animation um, is also its power to have a kind of a spectral effect and to uh, open, a, a, as it were, an emptiness in the, in the sovereignty of the speaker. Um, so, and this is very much what Ceylon is about because uh, is, his is a relational poetry. That it's a poetry that is uh, seeking like a message in a bottle, as you said, uh, to move toward the other, to open itself to the other. Um, and so, uh, maybe I'll say one thing about a detail in the, in the earlier poem, Shibboleth. Uh, right at its heart, it apostrophizes the heart, right? Um, 
helps. And it says to the heart, uh, call, call out the shibboleth. Um, and in German, that's rufs das shibboleth. And you can hear, as I'm saying it, that Ceylon has packed those S's right next to those sh sounds. So he's put the Ephraimite, as it were, together with the Gileadite uh, mispronunciation, um, signifying it, uh, or producing or performing, as it were, a, a, a deliberate sort of exposure of the text to uh, what? To failure, but also to adventure, to, uh, well, adventure maybe sounds a little a little wrong, but but um, but risk there is risk in a positive sense of of openness, and as you know, uh, one of his most famous uh, uh, um, sayings is one that Salon wrote in French, so in one of his other languages, uh, "La poésie ne s'impose plus, elle s'expose." Poetry no longer establishes but exposes itself. It's just this one sentence that we have from him, uh, written down for some reason in French, perhaps because as it's, it's a kind of extra exposure. Uh, that's what the poetry seeks to do. And it's all, almost all Salon poems address an other in some way, uh, precisely for this reason. Yeah, I think that's one of the the great challenges of Ceylon's poetry and, and how it addresses another and I think how it pushes the reader away almost because it, it they're hard to read these texts um, and it's hard to imagine yourself as the other, but reading it brings that to life. There's a performative gesture of, of you know, of picking up that message in a bottle and seeing if you can read it. Um, and I want to move now to the final chapter um, a very short one, but it's it's really, I think, powerful because of its referent. Um, and people can't see this because we're on a podcast, but it is on the cover of your book. And I think we can try to post a link to it um, in the podcast biography, or not biography, uh, the, the description. There we go. Um, and it's a picture of um, Doris Sacedo's installation at the Tate Modern from 2007, titled Shibboleth, and it's um, it's a giant crack in the ground. Um, and I have not seen this. I don't know if you have in person, but um, the Tate Modern still bears the scars of it. Um, and I'm wondering if you can kind of talk about what you're trying to bring out in this, um, in this little final chapter about what she's doing with Ceylon and what the fissure in the ground means for the word Shibboleth and for how we might come to know it and know Ceylon's poem. Yeah, um, yeah. The, the crack itself is no longer visible. It was filled in, it, it was an installation in the Turbine Hall, the Tate Modern in 2007, and then in, uh, some, in the spring 2008, it was filled in. But what can now still see is a brown scar on the floor. So there's a way in which it's an artwork that has persisted, as it were, past its past the expiration of its papers illegally uh, in the in in the European country uh, as an immigrant. 
So, and all of those issues are, of course, in play in in this particular work. Uh, um, well, one reason why I talk about it at the end of the book is because, um, well, it's a great piece of art, but it's also done by an artist um, who's an intense reader of Ceylon and of Derrida and of French thought generally. Uh, Doris Salcedo has, in fact, subtitled some of her works with phrases from Ceylon poems, and not just that, but from relatively obscure Ceylon poems, not the, you know, the greatest hits that <laughs> not that any salon poem is not a great, great hit, but, um, but, but really quite, um, you know, she really knows the oeuvre. So, um, although you can never say for sure, because this kind of thing is always part of the secret of the artwork, right? The shibboleth that it doesn't, that's the unpronounceable that it won't say, there's probably a direct allusion, or at least there's a, an echo. Um, so this work, artwork, um, you know, which is not only a crack in the ground, but also has embedded steel mesh fencing in visible bits to evoke, um, uh, you know, the, um, the technology of, of steel fencing to which we owe, um, so many things, many disastrous things, uh, in, in contemporary life. Um, uh, this artwork brings us back, brings the book back at the end to the sort of larger global political technical question of borders and identity papers and the refugee crisis. So I, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write about Salcedo at the end of the text. Um, yeah, and it's also, it, it brings uh, up again something that is at the heart of Salon's work and really Derrida's as well, uh, which is um, trying to bear witness for those who cannot speak, right? For the dead or the effectively dead, um, whose silence demands to, to demand speech, but not just any speech, right? Uh, the, effort, the effort is to find a speech that would be um, adequate, which is the impossible, which yeah, is art. Right. Um <laughs> <laughs> you write Salcedo's work commemorates but does not report, and it accepts the risk of abstraction and aestheticization, of a further loss and effacement of the injury it mourns, and it affords an impossible responsibility. And I think that is a precise definition or characterization of Ceylon's poetry, in that it there's it's talking about something but does not use the same language we would we would normally talk about the Shoah or um, fascist regimes of violence. Um, it does something else, which I think is where it, it gains its power. So I have one final question um, before we wrap up the interview, um, which is not about the book. It's about yourself and future books. So what are you thinking about now um, as we go into the future? What are your thoughts or do you have any projects in the pipeline already? Well, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I've come back to a very old but difficult question that I actually I think Salon is helping me with, um, which is the relation between poetry and prayer. Uh, I've grown interested in prayer, um, you know, in a somewhat secular vantage point, but, 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 but in a very serious way. 
asking, you know, what is, what is poetry? What is prayer? Uh, could there be a literary prayer uh, that would not, in, not in the trivial sense, but in the, but in the, uh, but, but, but in a, a real and anguished one. <laughs> and this obviously has a relation to apostrophe and address and, and to mm-hmm. Salon's um, work. And there are several of his poems that I'm, I'm think, trying to think more about in relation to this question. I'm also trying to write a few pages about the great Brazilian writer, uh, Clarice Lispector, uh, whose work is, I think, quite extraordinary. And um, who also Massively has some great underrad. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm up to right now. Well, those sound like great projects. Um, and I would, hope that we can have you back on if anything turns into a book. I would be delighted to come back. Well, thank you for talking with me today, Mark. Um, Once again, this was Mark Redfield talking about his book, Shibboleth, Judges, Derrida, Ceylon, which is out now from Fordham University Press. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for listening. And until next time, Have a good one.